Bloom, Buddhist Reflections on Serenity and Love by Ajahn Sona Chapter 11 The Sun and the Moon Taking the eight precepts on this auspicious night is giving the Buddha a birthday present. On various occasions, people who were grateful to him for his teachings and his example asked, What can I do for you, sir? Is there anything I can do for you? He would almost always reply, If you take up my teachings and practice them, that is the best gift you can give me. So too, these eight precepts are to be taken up occasionally by laypersons. It is especially auspicious to go to the monastery, he said, on the full moon, the new moon, and if more frequently, all the better. He said one time that the devas, the angelic beings, the beings in other very happy realms, had visited him, and some of them had noticed that their numbers were diminishing, not increasing. So they asked the Buddha about this. He said, the numbers in the heavenly realms will decrease if people do not take the eight precepts and practice by going to the monasteries and meditating. Numbers in these heavenly realms are bound to increase, on the other hand, if people do take up the eight precepts, take up the practice, visit or associate with the monastics, Listen to the Dhamma, reflect on the Dhamma, practice the Dhamma, bring the Dhamma into their lives. The Buddha couldn't be happier than when people are obtaining to a deeper level of happiness and to a good future, a positive destination in this very life and beyond. Nothing makes a person of the caliber of the Buddha so happy as the welfare and benefit of other beings. He has already reached the fullness of happiness in his own life. His own inner life is complete. There's nothing left for him to do but share it through his teachings and through his example. So he experiences mudita, sympathetic joy, when people undertake these practices. This is the ideal place to spend the Buddha's birthday, the ideal way to celebrate the Buddha's birthday. The best celebration is silence, silent retreat, watching your breath, cultivating the sublime abidings, sharing your own support with others in retreat. You're not just here alone. That's the difference between going on a solo retreat and being with other people. You're sharing with others just by being here. Sometimes you're struggling. It's not easy. You're making effort and others also see that you're making effort, and so they think, I can do it too. Sometimes at the end of a retreat, we have a closing circle, and we disclose some of our struggles and some of our inspirations. And again and again, we hear people saying, if it weren't for you three sitting there, where I could always just park behind you, I couldn't have gotten through it. So strangely, whether you know it or not, you are serving as an example to others uplifting others in your own journey to well-being and happiness. Make no mistake about it, the Dhamma isn't about anything else. 
When I was young and reading big fat books on Dhamma and thinking too much, I might have disagreed with the idea that Buddhism was about happiness and well-being and gone more for the sort of impenetrable somethingness of nirvana as beyond these trivial pursuits of happiness and so forth. Indeed, to make it comprehensible, we have to understand that the Buddha is addressing the human heart as it is and not trying to talk to us about something outside of the human experience. The human experience is nothing outside of the emotional dimension, well-being, the thing you might call happiness. Human experience is complex. It's full of intellect and other processes of the mind. But without the settling of the heart, the heart finding its way to the Dhamma, there is no internal harmony and well-being. The Dhamma is only the Dhamma because it hits the right notes, the true, the good, the beautiful. You're doing a great thing to be taking yourself to these retreats and practicing at home. The fact is, it's hard to know what the total effect is. I certainly had no idea what would happen to me as I explored opening doors and looking into different spiritual practices, but I ended up becoming a monk and associating with a lot of people, hundreds of people. I learned from others and was very inspired to see people living this life having trained in different monasteries in the Sri Lankan and Thai traditions and in the West with many monks. To see it actually being embodied, the living example is tremendously important. Last year, at this time, I believe, this group was here and Ajahn Sudanto was teaching. And every now and then the windows would be open and I would be in my kuti and my window would be open too. Sometimes I'd be staring out the window, forgetting all about time. I might be reading, and I would hear in the distance this kind of muffled sound. Sadhu, 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 anumodami. I'd think, is that the geese? Then I'd realize the nature of this drifting, beautiful sound. Oh my goodness, that was a terribly uplifting, beautiful experience. I'm not sure. I suspect that one night you played a talk of mine, and I wasn't even there, but I could hear you, sadhu, sadhu. It was me, and so I was in many places at once. This is one of the Buddha's miraculous powers. He can appear at several places at once. I was probably on YouTube at the same time. Somebody was watching me give a talk in West Virginia on YouTube, and over here it was happening too, all because of media. The human realm is a strange and interesting, complex and beautiful place. We're all tied in together. I see some of you from time to time over the years appearing at retreats in different places. I see the interconnection. It's something to just contemplate. We also chanted the reflections on gratitude to our teachers and so forth. That sutta is a very beautiful sutta. When I first chanted it, I thought it was strange. The sun and the moon. I thought, the sun and the moon? I wonder if that's really authentic, that sutta. But in my one-year retreat, I went back over early Greek philosophers. It's just amazing how this parallels a relationship to the sun and moon throughout the entire ancient world. 
I'm thinking it's a terrible thing when the sun and the moon become just a fire and a stone, just a nuclear something or other, and a stone hovering in the sky. That the backdrop of the natural world and people as beings in the natural world is lost. We can believe that science and our scientific and materialist attitudes are absolute, but they are only a fraction or a sliver of our evolutionary development. You see this when you read history. It's only very recently that we have dried everything out. Everything is now a butterfly collection, no longer flapping around. They all have little needles through them and are stuck on the wall. They're all dead. The world's dead and stuck on the wall, dried out. The moon is dried out. The sun is dried out. Everything is dried out. This is no way to live. You'll find out that people are dried out. You'll feel dried out. So you have to dive in and refresh yourself. The Buddha often gives images of this idea of totally soaked, completely saturated and soaked in the beautiful emotions of joy and serenity and ease. The mind is cool, the heart is warm. And he uses beautiful nature imagery of a lotus submerged below the surface of the pond and saturated. He talks about doing this with the mind. I remember also after his awakening under the Bodhi tree that he is said to have expressed gratitude to the tree. That's a weird thing to do, isn't it? You'd put him in a psychiatric ward these days. A man standing in the park thanking the tree for the shade. Thanks. Yet, that's the way to live. Forget the excessively rational and dried-out way. That's no way to live. You can't live that way. You have to love. You have to love the moon. You have to love the trees, the sky. You have to love people. You have to love yourself. And you have to love being alive. And you should not be able to get enough of it. When you go into the ocean, when you go into the lakes, you have to love the water. The water is holding you up. This is the kind of direct experience of the world that humans are evolved to have. Because if you read any older literature, the stuff that lasted, it's all about that. They're in love with the universe, the world. And when they are not, they have wise people strangely urging them to do this, to develop a different relationship. People can drift off. We can go off the mark and forget all that, and then we run into trouble. We lose it, something dries up. We can't find our way. We get lost. The way back is not through rationality, but it is through the heart, the emotional direct relationship that you probably had as a child before you thought too much. You loved the trees. You loved the grass. You loved your dog. You loved this night. You had a direct emotional relationship. You were alive to it. Now, childhood is not all bliss. There is some terror to it, too, and confusion and so forth. But there is something extraordinarily important that we need to recover, and that is the experience of being wondrously alive. One of the events that I just noticed today I've been waiting for, kind of like waiting for a show coming through town, almost like the circus coming to town. What is that? The aspen starting to leaf. That's a big deal for me. Some of you met Pavaro. He was here for years. 
He was visiting recently and left just before you arrived. I'd been talking for a week about the Aspens. The Aspens! Because I'd recorded it in my journal last year, and they'd come a week earlier than this. You go to sleep in a field of white poles, and you wake up, and it's a watercolor by Renoir. Yes, it's very beautiful. I'm looking out there, and tomorrow morning you'll wake up in a watercolor by Renoir. That fast. Pavaro every now and then would say, I hope they do it before I leave. But he had to go, and they wouldn't come out. They were very stubborn. But that's the beautiful, the wonderful of life. How do they know when to come out? It's fantastic. You get all kinds of explanations about how many heating degrees are needed and all that kind of stuff. It dries it right out and ruins the magic. I prefer the magic, and just to the degree that you do that, you'll experience it that way. What does the Buddha spend his time doing? In the evening, he's mostly talking to visiting angels, often till two in the morning. Lighting up the entire Jeta Grove, they come and visit him, and they ask him questions. What is the nature of human happiness? And so forth. Last night, we recited a response to that, one of the answers in the Sutta on Great Blessings. That was his answer when the devas came and said, You know, we were talking about what it is that makes a person happy. What's a good way to live? None of us really had a good answer. We asked various people, including even some of the higher deities, and they kind of referred us to you. They let on like they knew, but they thought we should ask the Buddha. So the sutta is his response. You can see in the arrangement of it that there are things you need to do in the world. You need to have a good place to live, and you need friendship. You need jobs, you need education, you need all these things, and you need to deal with your relatives. You need to take care of them, and they need to take care of you and all of that. But when it truly comes to the higher blessings, you have to discover this Dhamma. Dhamma is about the meaningful, larger picture in the midst of this life. If we don't get at least to the seventh or eighth blessings, there's a danger that at some point in our lives, we will just hit the wall and say, what is the point of all this? Okay, I will take care of my crazy uncle. I will do it. But what is the big picture? What is the point of it all? If we don't get to the last of the blessings, we live in danger of coming to the end of our life and really not having lived. So it's a terribly important and wonderful process, especially at this time in history, when it's much less likely that you'll ever be in a relationship of loving the sun and the moon, of respecting the sun and the moon, or of treating the sun and the moon as if they were important teachers to you. This is not what we do at this time. And so there are all kinds of ways to miss the whole point of life. I tried to think of what my life would have been if I'd missed the Dhamma. And I know lots and lots of people who did miss the Dhamma. So it's such a gift that the Buddha has left us. When we're in the meditation retreat and our knees are aching and we're trying to get back to the breath and we're kind of sweaty and tired and dried out and everything... We have to remember that there are other dimensions to this. We have to remember that we're human, and yes, we're doing a very tricky exercise here, trying to watch our breath. 
it's demanding and it doesn't click all the time. Maybe not very much sometimes. It's a hard thing to do and you wonder why you're doing it. Remember that there are whole other dimensions to this practice. And it really is about you in your full humanity, about your most intimate and vulnerable human heart. Always remember that. It's never a dry exercise. If we want to find our way strangely, we do have to do some of these spiritual exercises. But we shouldn't feel that just because it was a very difficult hour we spent, or two or three, or two days, or three days, or something, that that's really the point. It isn't. Sometimes we have to feel dried out in order to discover things. But do not project that experience into the future, believing that that is what it's all about, and that we'll always have this grind. We have to develop our repertoire and our tools and instruments in a wide way in order to refresh ourselves and to balance our human faculties. The Buddha often talks about the balance and the complexity of the human. He takes the person apart, not in too complex a way, not into infinity. He's only interested in taking it apart so it can help you along the way. He divides it up into the balances. Sometimes you feel in a retreat that your mind it isn't wandering too much, but you're in a slight semi-stupor, kind of dull and dry. That just isn't good enough. And so the faculties, the human dimension, have gone off the track. The Buddha says that's not what it's about. You have to infuse yourself with some sort of life energy. Don't settle for anything less. He wouldn't be teaching anything that dry and difficult. People have taught things like that, but it never lasts. So we have to keep saying to ourselves, am I finding my way to it? What is it? How will I know when I get there? It has to have a dimension of beauty to it. I have to exclaim, I think I'm on to it. This truly must be it. You have to find your way and say that with sincerity, and then you will be right. I have a lot of mudita for everybody here, but especially the youngest people here. Such a blessing to find Dhamma early in life. You really can't find it early enough, as probably some of you who are not so young know. You think, I could have saved myself a lot of trouble. I wasn't that old when I came across it, but I was still too old. I've had various people, various characters come through. Some of them have spent time as stewards and so forth. I remember one of them who had a fairly adventurous and painful life and who finally encountered Dhamma at about the age of 48. It really turned his life around. And from that point on, he would always talk about this. He'd say, you know, I'm not going to make it into the robes in this life, but I'm just setting myself up, so I'm in by seven in the next. I don't want to enjoy my teens or anything not interested. That was a horror show. He'd ended up at 17 years old in the U.S. Marines and then deserting during the Vietnam War, going over the U.S.-Canadian border on the night of the Tet Offensive. That was the beginning of a life. I think that's a nice idea. If you don't make it in this life, set it up so you're in by seven in your next life. I don't have a lot of detailed meditation instructions tonight. Again, we're just arriving you're still not quite here. 
All that I urge is that the first third of a retreat is really more about looking for joy, looking for energy, not trying to get too still too fast, because that tends to dull you and shut you down. You don't have to make a show of sitting very long in the sala. That will come naturally as the days go by. You'll just feel like staying longer. Of course, everybody is different, but be respectful of the natural curve of energy in a period of nine or ten days. If you want to get to refined states, you do need joy and energy that goes there in a natural way. If you try to stop and get into it too fast, you'll experience the dries. The Buddha didn't set this up for you to get dried out. You don't want to be a butterfly on the wall with a pin through you. You want to be lush and like the lotus suspended in the water, full of joy and tranquility. <laughs>